0: Has anybody ever heard of someone whose first name is Adoniram? I hadn't until this week. But Adoniram Judson was one of the first Baptist missionaries to Burma. And he arrived there just a couple of years ago in 1813. He already knew Latin, Greek and Hebrew, but he spent four years learning the Burmese language and some of the Buddhist customs and he held his first meeting in 1819 with 15 curious men. It took Judson 12 years of ministry to make 18 converts. The essence of Judson's preaching was a combination of conviction of the truth with the rationality of the Christian faith, a firm belief in the authority of the Bible, and a determination to make Christian relevant, Christianity relevant to the Burmese to, to their mind, without violating the integrity of the Christian truth, or, as he put it, to preach the gospel, but not anti-Buddhism. Judson, he translated the Bible into Burmese, and he actually established several of the uh, several Baptist churches in Burma, which is of course, now called Myanmar. These are the founding churches of ve- many of the Myanmar Karen Baptists that have migrated to Australia, following persecution and the civil war. And I think um, I recently heard that 16% of Victorian Baptists are Karen, so that's that they've migrated and they've got heaps of churches in our in our union. Um, so uh, during his ministry, he not only translated the Bible into Burmese but he also completed the Burmese half of the English-Burmese Dictionary, or the Burmese-English Dictionary, not the English-Burmese. That's what he did. Um, And at the time of his death, there were 100 Baptist churches and over 8,000 believers, and today they have the third most populous number of Baptists in any country globally. But I was struck by a quote from Judson. One day as his wife was reading the newspaper, she came across an article about her husband and she told him that the article likened him to some of the apostles. And Judson replied, I do not want to be like Paul or any mere man. I want to be like Christ. I want to follow him only, copy his teachings, drink in his spirit and place my feet in his footprints. Oh, to be more like Christ. What a wonderful heart that is, hey? And uh, that is a heart that John has as well, to be more like Christ, walking as Christ walked. It was quite a challenge from last week, behaving like Christ, abiding in Christ, being in fellowship with Christ, intimacy with Jesus, and oh, 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 to be more like Christ christ but i'm not sure about you but i feel the high standard that john is setting for us and you might like me might be a bit intimidated by the standard that john is wanting to hold us to and yes we have the holy spirit to help us but we also have a sinful nature so how on earth can we behave like christ did how can we be more like christ Well, from verse 7 in chapter 2 of 1 John, uh, that's what he sets out to explain to us how we can behave like Christ as he outlines the commandment of love. Commandment of love, that's today's message. So if you've got your Bibles with you, paper or an app, open them to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2 and we're going from verse 7. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So this old commandment that John's talking about is to love one another. It appears at least a dozen times in the New Testament. And it's nothing new to us as Christians. Charles Ryrie writes, The life of Christ was one of self-sacrificing love. Therefore, the proof of imitating him is exhibited in love. Love is that which seeks the highest good in the one loved. And since the highest good is the will of God, love is doing the will of God. So this is nothing new. It's an old commandment for these Christians that John was writing to. And it goes right back to the words of Jesus. Love one another. John thirteen thirty four. Jesus says, A new command I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus says it's new. But to John's readers, it wasn't new. But then in verse 8, John says, in fact, it is new. Are you confused? Because I was like, what on earth is going on? It is a bit confusing. So it is new because the incarnation, because with the incarnation, the light of God had entered the world more brightly than ever before. So when Jesus came the light entered the world more brightly than ever before so the old commandment is new in that it belongs to a, now a new era that Jesus had inaugurated so leviticus 19:18 contains the command to love your neighbor as yourself so we're talking about leviticus we're going right back to the start now right but there is now a new context for this command The new commandment is true in Christ and in Christians in this sense. Since Christ's obedience to his Father demonstrated it first and Christians' obedience to God is demonstrating it now. Christian love is truth manifested both in Jesus who modelled it and in his disciples who follow his example, who walk like Jesus walked. This true light, the gospel of Jesus Christ, was dispelling the darkness of sin and it will continue to do so until the final increase of that light results in the complete annihilation of darkness. Isn't that going to be a glorious day where there is nothing but light that is coming? When Jesus Christ issued the commandment anew, he called it a new commandment even though God had given it previously now it was new in the sense that due to christ coming as the light of the world so walking like jesus walked remaining in fellowship walking in the light intimacy with god however you want to however you want to phrase it they're all interchangeable to john one example of that he gives us in verse 9 how do we walk like jesus walked He's basically saying hatred of other Christians is a sure sign that you are not walking with God in close fellowship. Now, if you were to take this passage literally, it would have to be a pretty naive reading of the words because you'd then have to claim that if a believer, if anyone hates a believer, then they are not a believer. And if that was the standard that God applied, then virtually no one in the global church would actually be saved, right? So that's not what John is teaching. He's using a a mechanism which I often use, which is hyperbole. It's exaggerating something to make a point, but it's not meant to be taken literally, So the example that John is using of walking like Jesus is that to fail to show love is a demonstration of hate. To fail to show love is a demonstration of hate. Now if you fail to show love, the claim is that you are in darkness. You are not enjoying intimate fellowship with God who is light. But here's the good news. It's not permanent condition if you don't want it to be a permanent condition the condition can end. It ends when we love our brother. When we love a brother, we remain in the light, and being in the light means we can both see where we're going and avoid giving in to temptation. Now, have you ever heard the phrase, hurt people hurt people? Hurt people hurt people. If you hate someone rather than love them, then you might in fact be hurting them. And the hurt that you cause them from your sinful attitude may cause them to fall into sin also. And so staying in the light is not only helpful to us in our relationship and maintaining intimacy with God, but it also helps those around us as we displayed love see the gospel light not only illuminates our understanding but warms the heart into love now if we succumb to the sin of hate it affects us in three ways first of all it places us in the darkness which is outside of god's fellowship secondly it leads to aimless activity in which we are in great spiritual danger and in which there is possibility of a fall And third, it also results in mental confusion. A Christian who hates his brother loses their sense of spiritual direction in life, either partially or totally. No course of life is more dangerous for a Christian than one that includes hatred towards another believer. Walking in darkness is an ethical reality played out in our lives spiritually. Intimate fellowship with God is possible only when we renounce sin in our lives. And John gives us the example here applied to hatred towards other Christians. The challenge to us to help us walk like Jesus walked is to show love instead of hatred. So how might we apply this practically? Well, I reckon we can take an example from our hospitality team here. So last Sunday we met together and it was great to see so many people part of our expanded team and at that time we covered some of the basics. Hospitality facilitates relationships and so we want to help facilitate the healthiest relationships around us as possible. So whenever we are faced with a decision or have a decision to make, we ask one question. What is the most hospitable choice? And then we do that. So when it comes to when do we start cleaning up after the end of a service, well, what's the most hospitable choice? Let people have as long as they want to have a cuppa and a chat, and then we'll start cleaning up, right? That's one example. How do we apply that to love? Well, whenever you are faced with a decision, ask yourself one question. What is the most loving choice here? And do that. It's not rocket science. It's actually a simple choice we make. What is the most loving thing I can do towards my brother? I'll do that. And he then writes, John then writes a few verses, appreciating the spiritual advances and affirming the spiritual competence of those in the church that he was writing to. And he reminds them of their spiritual blessings to motivate them to cultivate intimate fellowship with God. So, as people who are displaying love, So when you face the choice, what am I going to do? What's the most loving option? I'll do that one. He then talks about and really encourages um, the believers in how they're going. So in verse 12, he says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. So the first thing that I'm sure you're wondering is who are these children, who are these fathers and who are these young men? Because that was the first question that came to my mind. And is John being literal here? Is he literally speaking to children, fathers, and young men? And I don't believe he is. I believe he's referring to the spiritual state of believers. The little children, I think here, refer to believers who personally know their forgiveness by God, but are new believers. New believers who personally know that they've been forgiven by God. Forgiveness is one of the first things a new believer appreciates about their salvation. We are forgiven there's no greater weight lifted in that moment of salvation when you realize i've been forgiven right the fathers refers to mature christians who had experienced fellowship with god through jesus christ and the young men refer to less mature but not believe but not new believers who had experienced some victory over satan now the normal experience we've all had as believers is appreciating god's forgiveness appreciating having fellowship with christ and then overcoming the evil one the forgiveness of our sins and the fellowship of christ render us as vigorous and prepared to do battle just like young men john also points out other characteristics of believers using the same stages of life it's like he's encouraging them because he acknowledges their growth and strength in their faith so he gives us three sets of children fathers young men And in the second set, John is implying that the new Christians among whom he was writing to had advanced from just appreciating that God had forgiven their sins and they had been taught and had learned to know God the Father to some extent in their experience. The statement about fathers, those who are spiritually mature, is the same in the first and second because the only advance from there is to know God more. So they're exactly the same because that's spiritual maturity. John initially said the young men had defeated the evil one, but he said nothing of their condition after gaining victory. They could have become weak and vulnerable. However, the second statement about them adds that they are strong and that God's word continues to abide in them. And so this is a a more robust spiritual condition. It's displaying progress. They had grown strong by abiding in God's word. And the flavor he gives here is of becoming overcomers. You know, in 1962, Victor and Mildred Goetzel published a revealing study of 413 famous and exceptionally gifted people called Cradles of Eminence. They spent years' attempt to understand what produced such greatness, what common thread might have run through all of these outstanding people's lives. And surprisingly, the most outstanding fact was that virtually all of them, 392 of the 413, had to overcome very difficult obstacles in order to become who they were. Walt Davis was totally paralysed by polio when he was nine years old but he didn't give up and he became the Olympic high jump champion in 1952 Shelley Mann was paralyzed also by polio when she was five but she wouldn't give up she eventually claimed eight different swimming records for the US and won a gold medal here in the 1956 Melbourne Olympics you know Woodrow Wilson couldn't read until he was ten But he was a committed person and he became the 28th president of the united states now who do you reckon this is at the age of seven he had to go and work to help support his family at age nine his mother died at 22 he's lost his job as a store clerk at 23 he went into debt and became a partner in a small store at 26 his partner died leaving him a huge debt By the age of 35 he'd been defeated twice when running for a seat in congress at the age of 37 he won the election at 39 he lost re-election at 41 his four-year-old son died at 42 he was rejected for a role as the land officer at 45 he ran for the senate and lost at 47 he was defeated for the nomination for vice president at 49 he ran for the senate again and lost again at age 51 he was elected President of the United States. During his second term of office, he was assassinated. Who was that? Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln. Overcomers, hey? And we could look at plenty of other examples of these people who have done great things, who had to overcome great adversity before they found that success. I mean, have you ever come across the story of Colonel Sanders, the KFC dude? He was like in retirement age before he actually became successful. And we could talk about other examples from the scriptures of Daniel, of Paul, of Peter, of David. We could tell stories of nearly every single person sitting here today about how you've become an overcomer in life. It starts with experiencing God's forgiveness, then knowing God intimately, and then overcoming evil growing strong as we abide in God's word. Each one of us from these verses should be encouraged to press on to know the Lord better and to pursue more intimate fellowship with him. And so after encouraging his readers, John then turns his attention to the enemies that we face. So he says in verse 15... John gives us a great warning of the many worldly dangers that we fake, face as we seek to get to know God better. He did this in order to prepare us, uh, for, to, to, in order to enable and prepare us and to overcome the obstacles with God's help. And when John writes of the world, he's not talking about the planet Earth he's not even talking about humankind or the human world what he's referring to is human culture as influenced by satan the world system and he gives us three pairs again the love of the world contrasts with the love of the father the love of the world comes from the world the love of the father comes from the father The world passes away whereas the one who obeys god remains forever so the world represents the system of values priorities and beliefs that unbelievers hold that excludes god that organized system that acts as a rival to god it is a moral and spiritual system designed to draw people away from god It is a seductive system that appeals to all people, believers as well as unbelievers, and calls for our affection, participation, and loyalty. Satan controls this system, and believers should shun it. It is the Father who is in opposition to the world. It is the Spirit who is in opposition to the flesh, and it is Christ who is in opposition to Satan. The sad reality is... That even some christians may be seduced into loving the world john gives us a picture of the infernal trinity if you like the three faces of the world the three sources of worldly temptation he gives us the picture of the lust of the flesh or the desires of the flesh it's the desire to do something apart from the will of god It includes all corrupt bodily desires and every sinful activity that appeals to the sinful hearts of people. The desires or lust of the eyes is the desire to have something apart from the will of God. Whatever is appealing to our senses but is not properly ours to desire or obtain falls under that category. And the pride of life is the desire to be something apart from the will of God. The first desire appeals mainly to the body the second to our soul or our mind or intellect and the third to the spirit perhaps the most common manifestation of the lust of the flesh in our culture is the overt sexualization of everything and the most common manifestation of the lust of the eyes is materialism and the most common manifestation of the pride of life is trying to control people, circumstance history or even god through power, money, or whatever path you can walk to get control. The lust of the flesh means such desires as are are prompted by the internal pressures of our human nature. The lust of the eyes means the desires around in us by objects or people. The pride of life uh, indicates the arrogance that comes from possessions or power. Matthew Henry called the lust of the flesh luxury, the lust of the eyes, covetousness, and the pride of life, ambition. These three basic desires come from the world system, not from the Father. And as believers, we should avoid them. See, God our Father desires our welfare, but the world will destroy us. Another reason that we should not pursue the lust of this world is that this system, along with its desires, is in the process of passing out of existence. Actually, we are living in what John called the last hour of the world's existence. The world is only temporary and fleeting, but we are given the assurance and hope that those of us who do God's will abide forever. We can enjoy an intimate relationship with God and abundantly experience God's eternal life now, not just after death, when we obey God. You see, resisting the appeal of the world is difficult for every single one of us. Satan has designed it that way. John urges us in view of its attractiveness to understand the avenues of its temptation and to remember four things... First of all, love for the world indicates a lack of love for God. From verse 15. Second, it results in consequences that are not what our loving Heavenly Father desires for our welfare. Verse 17. Third, it only lasts a short time. And fourth, it prevents intimate fellowship with God. So as I close, I have three questions for you today, directly from this passage. Where do you need to resist the world and instead enact the will of God? Where do your priorities line up more with the world system rather than God's? And what are you going to do to reset them according to God's will? So that's number one. Where do you need to resist the world, And enact the will of God second how can you as someone who is forgiven grow in knowledge of God which leads to spiritual maturity which leads to victory how can you grow and third what is the most loving thing you can do so there's hopefully three things to take away from today Where do you need to resist the world and instead follow the will of God? How can you grow and experience victory? And what's the most loving thing you can do? May God grant you great encouragement as you abide in him. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that indeed we have experienced your love and forgiveness. And Lord, as you have loved us, may we reflect that and love others. May we have that question front of mind when we're interacting with people around us. What is the most loving thing I can do? And Lord, I pray that we would also, as people who are forgiven, that we would grow in intimacy with you and in knowledge of you and Lord, gain victory over temptation and sin. And Lord, I also pray that as the world system tries to draw us away from you, that we would resist that and instead enact your will. Lord, reveal to us now areas where we need to spend effort and energy in our resistance and where we can replace our world's values with yours and where we can then begin acting on those values that you've given us rather than the values that have been absorbed from the world system and so lord i pray that each one of us would be granted your encouragement as we abide in you i pray this in the name of jesus amen